And today's business at hand is the business of your skin. The skin is the human body's largest organ and performs amazingly under a myriad of conditions. And it can be really resilient and protective, protecting against infection, or in some cases, it can be a very vulnerable combination of layers that are susceptible to various harmful conditions And even simple rashes might not be so simple or can cause tremendous discomfort. And at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes seemingly simple abnormalities can be the onset of severe severe, rather, illness. And today we'll shed some light and demystify the wonders of the skin with physician uh, Dr. Adar Berghoff, a Dermatologist with Metroderma Dermatology Focused Practice here in Atlanta. Pardon all those fumbles, Dr. Berghoff. Welcome to the Business Hour. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, there are a number of subspecialties uh, under the umbrella of dermatology, and some of those include uh, medical dermatology, surgical dermatology, pediatric dermatology, cosmetic dermatology, immunological dermatology, uh, an area that that, uh, you are particularly focused in uh, under the umbrella or subcategory of pathology. Uh, uh, So let's talk about uh, medical uh, medical dermatology for starters and have you uh, explain a little bit about each of these categories. What what falls under the umbrella? umbrella? Because most people would think that medical dermatology means dermatology. Right. What does it mean? Right. So medical dermatology is really um, just your, your typical, what you think of with rashes, um, acne, sometimes warts. Um, usually skin cancer may or may not fall, follow uh, under that category, depending on how you um, approach it. Um, but it, it wouldn't include some things that you think of as, as more like cosmetic dermatology, like Botox and, and other sort of um, aesthetic areas of dermatology. So it's really just the true medical part. It's similar to where you have an internist who will take care of your significant medical problems. The medical dermatologist takes care of your significant skin problems. And and what about uh, surgical dermatology? I think a lot of people are familiar with having uh, um, various growths removed uh, surgically. Is is that what falls in that category? Well, essentially, yeah, yes. It, uh, it falls hand in hand with the medical dermatology. Um, but the surgical really is more your um, skin cancer surgeon who you, you may not think of it, but dermatologists think of ourselves as surgeons. So we do a lot of surgery. Fortunately, it's minor; it's in the skin, um, but that's how we remove skin cancers and other, like you mentioned, growths. When we're looking to find out what they are, look under the microscope and biopsy them. Um, pediatric dermatology would seem to be somewhat uh, specialized, but then again. Um, I guess uh, it's just really young skin. Is there something about younger developing um, skin that is distinctly different from uh, adult dermatology? Right. There are some things. There are certainly conditions that that kids will get that adults won't um, or that you approach differently in children than adults. Um, Their their skin is a little different, especially with babies. Um, Similar to having a pediatrician treat your child versus having an internist treat treat, uh, an adult. Um, but then again, everything an adult can get in their skin, kids can usually get as well. So um, by having a pediatrician uh, or pediatric dermatologist who's trained to approach kids and, and often, honestly, the parents as well, 
um, is, is really it's a better way to treat kids again. You know, d- uh, throughout this uh, program, we're going to probably make references to things that people should be looking for and you know be aware of in in, in their their own skin. Um, what about uh, pediatric dermatology? Are you looking for the same thing as a parent? What do you? What should you be aware of, particularly uh, in the earliest stages uh, of infancy and uh, the toddler period? Right. So, it, you know, anytime you, I would tell a parent, if you see something in your skin's, uh, your, your um, child's skin, whether it's, it's a rash or growth, um, it's certainly something you would look for in your own skin. Um, kids often have you know, childhood illnesses, and there's rashes that go along with them. And it's, it's interesting. We, we expect our children to have colds and fevers and viruses. And, and a lot of times you take them to the pediatrician, and they say, it's just a virus. They're fine. Then the rash shows up, and that gets you know, becomes very worrisome. So those are the kind of things we tend to look at. And honestly, most of the time, by the time the rash shows up, the child's feeling better. And we can tell them actually what, what condition they had because the rashes can be distinctive um, and, the, and the children are, are, are doing fine. Um, but sometimes when those rashes, uh, you know, accompany certain illnesses, that's when we can kind of give them a clue, hey, there's something more serious going on, something we need to talk to the pediatrician about, something we may need to investigate further. And, you know, we, we almost think of rashes going hand in hand with Infancy, you know, like uh, rashes for a variety of reasons. I guess because the skin is very sensitive uh, in the early stages. Um, what uh, is there a rule of thumb about uh, if a rash persists more than a given period of time, you might consider consulting with uh, a dermatologist? Right. So, you know, I don't know if there's a distinct rule of thumb. I usually tell parents uh, if, if they've tried to treat it at home. Um, if the pediatrician has tried to treat it and has um, not been able to, um, if there's unusual symptoms, like I said, you know, if a child's ill and has a rash, a lot of times that's something worth, worth evaluating. Um, and then sometimes it's if, if it's causing enough discomfort. Like, like you mentioned, you know, we think of kids having rashes all the time. A, a baby who's got a diaper rash, a little bit of irritation, we've probably all seen that in our children. Um, but if it seems to be causing the baby unusual discomfort or if it's not resolving with the typical, you know, moisturizers and cleaning, um, you know, typical things we all do, that's the kind of thing where, you know, when it's not going away when we would expect it to, that's usually when we get involved and look. And sometimes it just needs a little more intensive care. Sometimes there's something else going on. It's just sort of masquerading as a typical childhood rash. I guess if it looks more severe and the child is reacting more to it, uh, you might uh, only wait a couple, two, three days, but if it's d- kind of mild, you might, uh, might let it go longer. for a week or so. Right. It, it, you know, it, it's different for every parent. I always say when, when you're concerned, I'm concerned. Um, and so sometimes it's reassurance. But, but yes, if it's, if it's seeming to persist and it's you know, more significant, then that's typically when we'll get involved. And if it's reoccurring, I would imagine you start evaluating what it is the parent does, what the routine is that might be causing it. Well, correct. Is it something in the routine that we can improve, or is there something underlying this and and it's more serious? Then we get to the area of immunological dermatology, which I I think is closely related to to pathological dermatology. And and, uh, some uh, dermatologists are probably um, skewed a little more toward that end of uh, the science of dermatology. Uh, and you fall in that category. Uh, you know, we had a conversation. You were telling me you spent a lot of time looking through the microscope, uh, and uh, as any good immunolo- immunologist would, um, tell us a little bit about that field. So, well, so my my uh, subspecialty is dermatopathology, and I, I I like to tell my patients I read their biopsies, so I get to see them uh, in the clinic and see 
their skin, see their rash or see their growth. And then when I remove it, I get to go in the lab and look at it under the microscope. Um, so it helps helps me be a little more connected um, to what I'm seeing. and sometimes helps me fit, you know, have a little better understanding um, and figure out what's going on. Um, and then as far as the immunodermatology, that, that sort of involves our, our own immune system plays a huge role in a lot of the human disease processes, and, and the skin is no exception. And there's certain subcategories that are probably um, more relevant to immunodermatology. There's blistering categories where uh, I know everyone's had a blister, uh, but there are conditions where your own immune system creates blisters all over your body. It can be. It doesn't sound so bad until you see someone who's, who's losing half of their skin to, to a blistering condition. Um, and if you do some of these biopsies, there's certain techniques you use on them and look at them under the microscope, and you can figure out what the cause is and treat those patients and get them better. Um, so, so for me, it's fascinating because I get to see it on the patient in their skin in the office, and then I get to take it to the lab and look at it and, and help them figure out what's going on help them get better. It's got to, there's got to be uh, some advantage to uh, having a, a dermatologist like yourself that is the person looking uh, uh, through the microscope uh, and making the analysis uh, as an expert uh, uh, in uh, dramatic uh, pathology versus uh, you hear a lot of things sent out to a lab. Uh, you know, you are the uh, right. the lab. Uh, right. So it's, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, one-stop shopping in that regard. <laughs> uh, you mentioned blistering uh, disorders, and we're going to be t- talking a, li- a little bit here about the infectious diseases of the skin. Uh, of course, with blistering, you know, you have the infectious end of the spectrum, but also do you see burns which can blister as well, which are not infectious? Right. Is, that, is that the range? Uh, well, so, so, right, so there's, you know, in, infectious uh, blisters. I mean, there are, you know, if something gets burned, whether it's a scald or, you know, some, something hot at home, um, I definitely see those blisters. The, the blistering disorders, when we refer to that in dermatology, there's, there's autoimmune conditions. Um, that, you know, I'll throw some names out there, but they, they won't mean a whole lot. There's something called bullous pemphigoid. Pemphigus. They've been around for for you know, centuries. Um, we didn't know what caused them until probably the last few decades when we were able to, to use immunodermatology. And you essentially create um, autoantibodies, so antibodies to um, proteins in your own skin. And, and what happens is the skin loses the attachment to itself, and so your layers of skin separate. Um, and, and it you know it sounds like, well, it's a blister. How bad can it be? When the majority of your skin is involved, or certain areas like your eyes, your mouth are involved, I mean, you can lose vision. Um, it can it cause difficulty swallowing, and then you're susceptible to significant infections um, because because your skin barrier is not working. So it, they are dangerous. And and while they're rare conditions in the general population, I only see skin, so I see them fairly regularly. Um, and. It may be different in the case of infectious uh, blisters uh, and uh, blisters uh, that are a result of uh, of burns, Um, but are blisters to some extent uh, part of that body's protective mechanism? Is that that buildup of fluid under the blister designed to help the healing process? Which then leads me to a question that I think a lot of blisters might have, and that is, to puncture or not to puncture, uh, you must hear that all the time. I do. That's the, the classic question. So address the first part. So, I, you know, I don't know. Um, there are some things our body does, like fever, which, which while it doesn't make us feel good, actually is helpful in fighting disease. I'm not sure that the blister isn't sort of an aberrant response um, to trauma. Now, it, it may be that 
you know, sort of transfers the, in like the case of a frictional blister, say from ice skating, from skates that don't fit, where you get that blister so you don't do more damage and, and the fluid is there as protective. Um, but you're asking the question to puncture or not to puncture. It's the fluid that's painful because it's, it's up underneath a layer of the skin and it's pushing on the sensitive nerves. So the answer is sort of puncture, sort of not puncture. And what I usually recommend to a patient, honestly, is you take a needle and clean it with rubbing alcohol and you pop the blister through the blister skin which is dead, so you, you don't feel it. You drain out the fluid, um, and that relieves the tension, and that relieves the pain. You keep it clean, but you don't tear off the roof of the blister, which is what people like to do, because what that does is exposes that um, naked skin underneath there, which which hurts and then puts you at risk for infection. And and, and that layer of skin, that, that epidermis, is still acting Correct. as a protective layer. Right. We, we, refer, we call it a natural bandage. That's essentially what it acts as your own bandage. But you just want to drain that fluid out and then leave that natural bandage there and let it slough off on its own as it heals. Another area that, that people don't think about much is uh, the connective tissue um, w- related to uh, the dermis uh, and the epidermis uh, uh, and maybe even s- sublayers. Uh, below uh, the uh, the dermis, tell us about connective tissue diseases. What falls in that category? So usually, it, it, in some ways, it's a misnomer. It's sort of a relic. Um, they're more um, autoimmune conditions. Uh, lupus is one, and we, you know we've all heard of lupus. Usually, you think of systemic lupus of patients who can be really sick. But there are versions that are skin only or skin manifestations of systemic lupus. It's again an autoimmune condition, but can be diagnosed. Um, by a patient seeing me, when I see the, the particular rash and do a biopsy, I can say to the patient, hey, we need to work you up for lupus. There's another condition called dermatomyositis, um, which, which the dermato refers to skin and myositis refers to muscle damage. Um, but they can, again, can be diagnosed initially in the skin. Um, that one's important, uh, one, because you need to treat it because they can have significant muscle issues, um, but it can be indicative of an underlying malignancy, so that they could have a cancer that's actually causing this condition. So while the, the, the dermatomyositis may not be the biggest problem, finding and treating that malignancy is, is huge. Again, the pathology behind this is something that can lead to uh, other kinds of treatment uh, with other specialists. Exactly. We're here with uh, Dr. Adar Berghoff, a uh, dermatologist who is helping us demystify a lot of different medical uh, conditions related to your skin. We'll be back with Dr. Berghoff right after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Join us for the first annual Walk a Mile in Her Shoes on Saturday, September 22nd at Historic Fourth Ward Park. For more information, go to AtlantaWalkAMileInHerShoes.EverydayHero.DO. Are you man enough? 
you're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Dr. Berghoff, a dermatologist who is helping us understand better the different categories of conditions related to a a problem um, that might be of an infectious nature or might be due to some sort of injury. And we're talking about various uh, infectious diseases of the skin. Um, That's where we left off in our last segment. Uh, Dr. Berghoff uh, pointed out that uh, that oftentimes connective tissue diseases can be indicative of a larger problem, and and uh, I, I had not thought about it. Maybe if I had, I, I would have uh, realized that you can detect uh, conditions which are n- non-cancerous. That's the typical uh, perception, but conditions which could be related to another disease, and you pointed out that lupus, for example, that might be the first uh, um level of awareness for someone, a condition that they come to you about, and then you help them realize that they should uh, probably seek out the uh, um, right the expertise of a, someone who can deal with something like lupus. Right. Yeah. I, when, um, when I diagnose lupus in the skin of a patient, I always have to test them to look for signs of a systemic lupus, um, which systemic lupus erythematosus. And, and if I find it, I send them to a rheumatologist. Um, because I, you know, I treat the skin only, but but if I know they have a more significant uh, manifestation of the disease, that they need other treatment. Um, because the the skin disease can be disfiguring. Um, it usually doesn't affect your your lifespan. So, um, so in the medicine in medicine we say it has morbidity, but it doesn't have mortality. Systemic lupus um, is much more significant. It can affect your heart, uh, can affect your lung, it can affect your joints, um, and can you know lead to mortality. So we. That's one, you know, when I find that, I have to explain to the patient how important it is, and they need to see a specialist who has ex- expertise in that area of medicine and can treat them appropriately and, and um, help them control their symptoms and um, uh, prevent complications from the disease. Am I mistaken, or would you be um, part of that first generation of dermatologists who has been able to connect a uh, uh, a dermatological condition uh, to something like lupus because uh, a couple of decades ago because of the the, the nature of, of symptoms which were varied and in in multiple combinations with lupus we didn't we didn't know uh, it, it wasn't diagnosed as easily right you know I, I wish I could take credit for it being the first generation I, I think um, some of it you're right we we've, we've elucidated the, the symptoms and causes of some of these conditions better, so we're able to connect the dots a little bit better. Um, some of our technologies improved. I think some of it is just sort of general awareness and uh, proliferation of dermatologists. I think derms have known for a long time there's, there's things they'll see in the skin that relate to underlying conditions, um, but there haven't always been as many dermatologists and communication between doctors has significantly improved over the years just because technology allows that, so we're better able to um, to probably let other specialists know that we can help them identify conditions and treat their patients. So um, probably the knowledge has been there for a long time, but the, the ability to use it and focus it where it needs to be um, directed has probably significantly improved over the last couple of decades. Um, yeah. I, I, I thought, Again, if I, I'm not mistaken, and you would be a little young for this, uh, you were probably still in medical school, uh, but it was maybe 30 years ago when we started to become aware of 
or better at diagnosing lupus? Because I think it seemed pretty mysterious before that. Uh, yeah, I think there was, you know, we knew when patients had enough manifestations they had it, but there were, there was um, a significant uh, conference of rheumatologists and, and other um, involved specialists where they sort of came up with a list. I think it's 16 criteria. You have to have four of them to be diagnosed with lupus. Um, and I want to say it was the late 80s or early 90s. Uh, where they it was called the Chapel Hill Conference because that's where it was, um, which is significant for me. But um, and, and that was something where what we say in medicine is that it, it's important to me- have significant um, specific criteria for a, a disease, and then to m- ensure that if a patient's diagnosed, they meet those criteria. Um, because one, you want to have a diagnosis and be able to put a name on a condition, and two. When we have a diagnosis, we can give you the right treatment. So if you can't get a specific exact diagnosis, it's much harder to treat specifically. So patients who get a good diagnosis get a better treatment. Um, so I think you're right. I want to say it was the late 80s or early 90s when they quantified that. I think you're right. I was doing some work with the Lupus Foundation uh, in the uh, mid uh, to late 80s, and that was uh, at, at the, there were some references made uh, to it as as mysterious and uh, and and uh, and young women in particular were being asked to uh, right. you know seek out the advice of, of a physician because we were just beginning to get a handle on it and uh, uh, and we were saying it doesn't take a magician or something like that. It, uh, it, you know, it does. It was anecdotally, it, just in my experience from, from my training and, and further on, the patients who tend to have these rheumatologic conditions, lupus and dermatomyositis, dermatomyositis, some of these others, they tend to present to their, usually their primary cares over the years with some various kind of vague conditions that are hard to link together, symptoms that are hard to link together. Um, and a lot of times they get blown off because they'd say, well, that's not a big deal. There's no test for that. And, and over time, their disease kind of evolves to where it becomes obvious, oh, you have lupus. Um, but more recently, we've gotten better tests and, and, and are more aware of the symptoms, so we're better able to put things together. So it did. It kind of used to be that black box of, I don't know what these vague symptoms are. Maybe you have something. Some, some of the patients weren't taken seriously. Now I think we do a better job of realizing there's something there. There's a condition that can cause symptoms like these. You just got to put it all together and make the diagnosis. Kind of like fibromyalgia, which is also about 30 years uh, uh, since we started to get a handle on that. Let's talk about psoriasis and and related conditions because I know that's something you probably see uh, pretty often. How do you characterize uh, that area of dermatology? So psoriasis, um, it's become one of the big sort of um, conditions in dermatology that that there's been tons of research and tons of new medications for, um, which is fantastic. It's it's an autoimmune condition where um, essentially patients' skin grows too rapidly, so they get these thickened pink scaly plaques, and almost everyone's seen it. Um, The treatment for it used to not be be great. Um, We've got new medications. Biologics is the name for the, the general category of medications and now we can really treat it and really honestly change patients lives because I, I get a patient where I used to be able to have them put on topical medications or take some pills that were honestly had potentially significant side effects and and they would they would get okay they might get 30 percent better they might get 50 percent better um, now I can put them on these new medications which while have potentially significant side effects patients tend to do very well with and I can get them easily 75% better usually 90% better honestly at this point if they don't get 90% better it's it's a failure but the big paradigm shift um, 
in addition to treatment has been that what we've realized through, through study of these patients is that psoriatic patients actually have a systemic condition, so it doesn't just involve their skin. And we've known about psoriatic arthritis for years, um, which can be significant, but um, we found these patients tend to have higher rates of heart attacks, higher rates of strokes, and, the, um, and they, they die younger. Um, and that we found when we treat their, their illness systemically, so with these better medications, um, they live longer and they live better. So it's, it's really, it's a huge shift. It makes it, it used to be you get the psoriatic patient in and you, you kind of have to break it to them. They have this terrible condition and you're going to try and help them, but you can only do so much. And now you say, I've got great medications for you. I'm going to make you feel better. You're going to look better. You're going to be happier. And you're probably going to be healthier and probably live longer. So you know, that's probably uh, great news to people who have uh, suffered from psoriasis. Uh, and, and another reminder that you should be watchful of your skin, uh, right. indicating that there could be a larger problem. Uh, how about photosensitivity? Uh, is it still generally true that if you're lighter complected, you might be more photosensitive, or can a dark complected person also be uh, photosensitive? Right. Well, so it depends on on what you're, you know, what you mean. If you say photosensitive and sensitivity to just ultraviolet rays, the lighter you are, the less natural protection you have. So, so. It follows, as you said, the, you know, you will be more sensitive. Um, a lot of times in dermatology, there are certain conditions we say they're photosensitive in the sense that you only get the condition when you have ultraviolet radiation or other sometimes visible light or infrared light. Um, and one example is something we call polymorphous light eruption, or PMLE for short, because that's a mouthful. Um, I see it all the time in Atlanta because we have so much sun that, that um, as, as we head into spring and March and April, it's a condition where essentially... Um, it, it's, it, you know, it, it's uh, simplifying it, but patients are allergic to the sun. Um, it's usually specifically um, ultraviolet B radiation. So when they get a little bit of that ultraviolet B um, radiation that shows up when, when the earth swings towards the sun in the spring, they actually get an allergic reaction in their skin. It usually shows up in the arms, sometimes the chest, and they'll get essentially an eczema-like rash. And they come see me, and, and they usually say it's been going on for a few years, it's just not too bad, but they notice every spring they get a little bit of a rash, and it's very itchy and goes away as the as the spring goes on. But it gets worse as they go, and I kind of have to explain to them: well, you're sort of allergic to the sun. You really need to wear sun protection and protect your skin. Um, and the other category that I think of is there's a lot of medications that the medication is okay by itself, and the sun's okay by itself. But if you take the medication and expose yourself to the sun, you can get a pretty significant reaction. There's blood pressure medications, the antibiotics fall in that category. Um, and uh, even um, African Americans and other dark skinned people right. can be sensitive to uh, UVB. Right. So, so whether it's the 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 light eruption I was talking about, the sun allergy, or the drugs. Um, doesn't matter what color your skin is, anybody and everyone can get those. And th- there are some conditions maybe that are more common in certain skin types versus others, which may be more genetically related, um, may have to do with where people live in the, in the world too, and what kind of UV exposure they get. But, but yes, no matter what kind of skin you have, um, you can have a, a photosensitive eruption. And, you know, this is a question that I was going to save for uh, later uh, in uh, the program, but we might as well segue to it. Uh, and that's the area of of sunscreens and you and I had had a a conversation and essentially we were I I believe you said something like in the range of about 30 SPF to 50 was a a, a range uh, where you're reasonably well protected uh, and really that there was a point of diminished returns uh, beyond 50 even though we have uh, 75 plus now SPF uh, protective uh, Ointments. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the effectiveness of, of sunscreens. Right. So, so sunscreens have gotten much better. 
Um, there's two basic categories. There's chemical-based um, sunscreens, and then there's physical blockers. And the physical blockers are zinc and titanium. They're basically metal that's ground in the small bits. Um, they're both effective. Uh, there's some debate over which one's more effective. Some people worry about the chemicals and being absorbed. Um, there's not great evidence to show that that's a significant problem, but if you are worried about that, you can use the physical blockers. Um, but the things you should really look for uh, in a sunscreen is, number one, a certain SPF. And what I tell my patients is you should wear sunscreen every day, um, no matter what, when you're going out, when you leave your house to go to work or wherever you're going, um, brush your teeth, put on your sunscreen, it should be on your face, your neck, your arms, any exposed areas. And that, that's a 30, and that just protects you against a little bit of sun that you can get driving in your car or walking, walking in the parking lot to work. Um, but if you're going to be outside, whether you're going to go work in the yard or go to your kid's ball game or, or what have you, go to the beach, you want an SPF 50, um, and you want it to be broad spectrum. That means it blocks UVA and UVB rays. And almost every sunscreen does now, but you do want to want to check for that. Um, it's nice if it's water resistant because usually we're outside when it's hot, so we sweat a little bit. So you want it to hold up to that. Um, but you know, when you get above a 50, it, it's not bad. Um, but I don't know that you're getting any more protection truly than you are um, at just a 50. And so what I usually tell my patients is honestly, if the 70 is on sale and it's cheaper than the 50, go for it. But if you're paying more money for a 70 or a 100, you're probably wasting that money. And if the 50 is cheaper, you, you should do just as well because there really is a diminishing return. You can only block so much of a percentage. Um, and it all wears that off after two hours. So no matter what, you got to reapply in two hours. And, and and would you also say that, that for someone who is uh, uh, outdoors regularly, uh, whether it's recreation or their profession, let's say a landscape uh, architect, um, that uh, you should definitely apply uh, something like SPF 50 and particularly in the spring and the summer? I would. I would say SPF 50 uh, in the spring and the summer. If you're going to be out all day, you should probably use it all gear. Um, it's, some of it depends on where you live. I mean, we all know in Atlanta we can still have pretty sunny, fairly warm days in the in the winter. Um, you may not need the 50 in January. I mean, there's there's not as much UVB rays, but it won't hurt. I like to have people in the habit of it so they don't forget to put it on when March comes. And even though it's still chilly, they, they can get a sunburn, which I see every year because people forget that the sun doesn't care how you know what the temperature is. And in, in the same token, I tell them, you know, if it's cloudy out, um, you still need sunscreen. You can burn on a cloudy day, um, which happens all the time. Um, we're going to be taking a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about some other uh, infectious diseases of the skin. We're here with Dr. Berghoff. We've been talking about the wonders of the human skin and also the susceptibilities of the human skin. We'll be back with Dr. Berghoff right after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org 
or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Come join us on September 22nd at Historic Fourth Ward Park for the first ever Atlanta Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. Walk a Mile in Her Shoes asks men to literally walk one mile in women's high heel shoes as a way to express empathy to all victims of sexual assault. It's a lighthearted way to get the community talking about such a difficult subject. Are you man enough? Come join us. All proceeds benefit Day League, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. For more information and to register, go to Atlanta Walk a Mile in Her Shoes everydayhero.do Your auto love and investment demands the best and for 45 years Passport Transport has been meeting those demands from manufacturers to the one car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby the first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind Passport Transport your auto transportation company contact PassportTransport.com with your need today Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And we're here with Dr. Adar uh, Berghoff. And we've been talking about dermatology. We've been talking about uh, mysteries of the skin and uh, the protective uh, capabilities of the skin, the susceptibilities uh, to uh, injury or infection. Uh, and just before the break, we were talking about photosensitivity, uh, and we talked about sunscreens. Uh, during the break, uh, I was asking Dr. Berghoff about uh, the parts of your body which are not normally um, exposed, you know, when you're covered mostly from head to toe through out most of the year and then you spend the summer months at the pool or at the beach and then you have skin that has not uh, as you put it developed a little bit of that pigment uh, that uh, too much and and it's 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 uh, not a good thing but a little bit of pigment then helps protect against uh, sunburn and so tell us a, a, a about what you just told me uh, with regard to the increased susceptibility for those parts of the skin that are newly exposed, I guess we'd call it. Right. So if, if you have skin that hasn't seen any sun, um, it's going to be more susceptible. It's going to be more likely to burn more quickly. So we always tell patients um, any tan is, is damaged. But, you know, we, we acknowledge it, it's hard, especially if you live somewhere like Atlanta. You're going to get sun on some exposed areas you're probably going to develop a little bit of color. So there is some protection that's provided to your skin. That's why your body biologically has developed that ability to tan, is it does provide protection. But So if you take an area that's gotten zero exposure and go to the beach and expose it, it it's going to be more significant exposure. You're going you're gonna to have a worse sunburn, essentially. Um, the difference, you know, that's the difference short-term is, is you have a lot more pain to recover from from that sunburn. The difference long-term is that it's been shown that melanoma risk is increased by intermittent exposure. So that's why it, when you look at it, men actually are more likely to develop melanomas on the trunk because um, we take our shirts off when we go outside. Uh, women tend to have a higher risk on, the, on their legs, especially the back of their legs, and that's from unfortunately, from, from tanning procedures. Uh, and then other types of skin cancers, basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, tend to develop in areas with chronic you know, sort of daily sun exposure. So that's why head, neck, um, hands, and, and arms are much more common areas to see those skin cancers. Now, the uh, the area called uh, Q, 
cutaneous ulceration, is that just referring to wounds on the skin of any sort? Right, an ulceration is just a, a break in the skin barrier. Um, and, and for me, when I, when I categorize a patient who's got an ulceration, I have to think about why do they have this ulceration. Um, it can be infection. It can be trauma. Um, a lot of times... For, for what I do, it, it's an indication there's a skin cancer. So an ulcer um, that's, that's at all persistent, for me, that's more than a few weeks, um, or has any characteristics that are concerning, um, gets a biopsy. Um, and sometimes a, a culture looking for infection, because that's one of the most common ways a skin cancer will present is, is an ulcer. And then sometimes there's ulcers, um, well, they're due to other causes. You still have to biopsy them to delineate those causes because you can't treat it very well if you don't know what's causing it. How about oral diseases? So we do see some, we sort of share this with, um, with the ear, nose, and throat doctors and dentists. Um, there are a lot of skin conditions, though, that, that either have aspects that present orally or there are um, conditions like nutritional deficiencies or a common one that can present with symptoms in the mouth. And, and I know some patients come to us initially for oral conditions, usually it's sort of an aside, oh, by the way, I've got something going on in my mouth, which sometimes turns into the, the most important reason for them to be in the office. But um, whether it's a malignancy or an inflammatory condition, um, we often see you know, oral disease that, that we can help the patients address. Eczema, that would be another area that uh, a lot of us uh, hear about if you uh, listen or you watch TV uh, or uh, see it in various forms of uh, marketing and advertising, uh, we would think that uh, there's a very large uh, portion uh, uh, of a large segment of the population that suffers from eczema. Is that true? Is it is a major uh, population? I think it is. Uh, I mean, I see tons of it. Um, in a way, I, you know, I always kind of, to my patients, explain it. Eczema really just means red, dry, itchy, scaly skin. And almost everyone's had some form of eczema. There's different types. There's what we call intrinsic eczema, which is sort of a genetic inborn eczema. When you think of kids having it, uh, which we call atopic dermatitis, there's allergic contact dermatitis, which is where you've come into contact with something. The best example um, is poison ivy. Almost everyone, if they haven't had it, knows what that is. Um, and then there's other, you can have an irritant dermatitis, which is just, you know, like this time of year, if you're hot and sweaty, you're outside doing something, you get a frictional rash. I mean, that's a type of eczema. Um, but it, it does seem the incidence seems to be increasing, and, and there there's some probably biological and societal reasons for that, um, some genetic reasons perhaps as well. Sometimes we do a better job of diagnosing things that might have been called something else before, and now we're realizing it. But so I always tell people eczema is just it, it it's easy to refer to things that way because everyone kind of understands it. But that's not a great diagnosis if that's all we leave you with. So I usually try to explain to patients which type of eczema I think they have. The nice thing is is the treatments for them are usually very similar. We just you know it's always moisturizing and using a topical anti-inflammatory. If it's more chronic, we may try and figure out exactly what's causing it. But um, but I do think the incidence is increasing overall. Yeah, that's a whole other program is uh, <laughs> talking about uh, environmental uh, and uh, the evolution of certain conditions. Um, Vertiligo, uh, which is that area of pigment disorders, and of course a lot of this stuff is related, but tell us how it's uh, uh, specifically a, a little different than other conditions. Right, so vitiligo is a, a, is a particular pigment disorder where you lose the melanocytes, which are the cells that make pigment, um, get attacked by our own immune system, so they get destroyed, so you, you don't make pigment. And it'll leave, you know, in a lighter color patient, it can be subtle and hard to pick up because it's not a huge difference. In a darker uh, pigmented patient, it'll leave an area that, that's stark white and is, is a um, disfiguring contrast. And 
I sometimes hate giving this example, but but everyone of a certain generation knows Michael Jackson had vitiligo, and that's why he had lightened his skin was to make it match. That's why he wore a glove on one hand. Um, he covered it up, but it, it's you know it's a certain category of what we call pigmentary disorders, and there's there's tons of them. Um, you can lose pigment for all kinds of reasons. You lose pigment from chronic sun damage. Um, you can lose it anytime you have a, a rash or an infection. Um, it can leave, you know, especially if you have some tan skin, it will leave a lighter colored mark. Um, kids who get acne come in with with um, darker colored areas where they've had pimples that have resolved because it's left inflammation, which leaves darker pigment in their skin. So it is a wide range. And, and like I say, it kind of um, interweaves with some of these other conditions because you may have a pigment change or a pigment alteration, we refer to it as, but it's due to a n- different underlying condition. And so treating the underlying condition often helps with the pigment. Uh, and, and I had referred to it as uh, vertiligo, and you point out it's vertiligo is the pronunciation. Um, pruritus or Pruritus, uh, which is, I guess, that category uh, that includes uh, an itching condition? Right. Pruritus is just, th- that's our medical word for itching. I, if we don't have fancy words, then anybody can be a doctor. So so <laughs> I, I usually kind of let patients know that's what we call it, but but uh, it's itching. And, and right, pruritus is, there's pruritus where you know, we mentioned eczema. Eczema is itchy. That's a type of pruritus. Um a lot of times, though, patients come in and say they're itchy and they don't have a rash and they don't know why they're itchy. And, and sometimes there's there's irritated nerves. You can have a nerve impingement where it's not causing weakness or numbness, but it's causing itching. Um, so it's nice to identify that and explain it to the patient. One of the big categories there that we see um, patients who have kidney or liver disease will have sort of generalized itching and it's, it's intractable. There's, there's nothing that seems to make it better. And sometimes those patients know they have internal disease. A lot of times they don't. So I'll do a workup that includes sometimes a biopsy, a lot of times lab, you know, blood work, trying to elucidate the cause, because if I can find that out, and I say, well, I may not be able to treat your itching myself, but I know you have kidney disease, you need to go see a nephrologist who can help you improve your kidney function, which will, by the way, make your itching better, but if your kidneys don't work, it, you know, you, you're not going to be very healthy. So that's a, a case where I can, you know, help that patient um, treat an internal condition they may not realize they have. And, and speaking of itching, you mentioned earlier contact dermatitis. Correct. Uh, Poison ivy would be probably the most uh, popular uh, or frequently classic. occurring classic condition. Um, and then and, and they're just – what besides poison ivy, what are some other areas that uh, people can uh, – Develop uh, a reaction uh, through contact. With. Right. So, it's, well, poison ivy—that's the classic. You know, it's, it's in the plant base. You know, which there can be other things out there. We all know. Um, cosmetics are, are a big one. Um, so, patients who use a new soap or new makeup or have a hair dye, and there's all kinds. There's preservatives. There's there's fragrances. Um, there are metals. So, gold is a big one. Um, sometimes I have to tell patients they're allergic to their wedding band or their engagement ring and. Platinum doesn't tend to cause the reaction, so sometimes they get excited because they get to go get a new ring. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, nail polish can be a common cause, uh, which which is interesting. And it's hard to tell a woman she can't wear nail polish if she wants to, but but I see that regularly. Um, nickel's a really common metal, which seems to it's it's a part of an alloy that's in almost every metal because um, no metal is pure, you know, gold, silver, or anything else. So nickel nickel allergies can be really really difficult uh, to treat once you diagnose it. But there, you know, there are literally hundreds of, of allergens out there so it can be very difficult to figure out which one someone's particularly allergic and, and so these are things which uh people are allergic to uh and, and on contact they have a, a reaction correct um 
Another area that I'm certain you must see a, a, a lot of patients for is is that whole area of acne. And one of the things you pointed out to me is that there are many new uh, ways that if you really um, <coughs> can analyze uh, correctly, you can come up with better uh, specified treatments uh, and medications uh, for for acne. And I'm going to have you address that. We're going to be taking a break. We're here with Dr. Brickoff a dermatologist who has been sharing lots of insight about various dermatological conditions and um, ways that your skin protects itself and other ways that the skin is vulnerable. We'll be back with Dr. Berghoff right after this break. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine understand Obamacare, and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Dr. Berghoff. We've been talking about your skin. Uh, and as the largest human organ, your skin is uh, susceptible to various illnesses, uh, infections, um, and uh, is also highly protective if you take good care of it, and that's uh, some of the, what we've talked about. Now, this last area, uh, uh, or the last couple, we're going to talk about acne, and then I want to transition to skin cancer. But uh, in terms of acne, um, you know, you point out that there, if you if it's analyzed uh, correctly, there are some new uh, treatments that, which are highly effective. Tell us a little bit about that. Right there, there's many treatments out there for acne, many different ways to approach it. Um, there are some newer treatments that have become available that are that are effective. There's some old ones that are that are still good. Um, what I like to tell patients is. I, I look at the, I examine them, I look at their skin and tell them what kind of acne I think they have, whether you know, it's inflammatory or cystic, um, just which is just the severity of their acne. And I tailor their regimen to um, what type of acne they have. Um, and, and it is, for me, it's, it's very analytical. Um, there are some basic 
medications that I tend to use. There's, there's Retin-A is kind of the old standby that's been around forever. Tretinoin's a generic name, and it's still there and still great. Benzoyl peroxide is another one. There's a couple antibiotics that I use, um, doxycycline, and they're, they're in the tetracycline family. But if I, uh, you know, if I put you on a regimen, chances are you're going to get better if I've analyzed correctly and put you on the correct regimen. But not everyone's the same, so I will start with a basic pattern and, and certain elements, and then I want to see the patient back. So if they're, if they're getting better, we continue with the regimen. If they're not, we can tweak it, we can adjust it. But there are some newer medications. There's, there's a very powerful medication called um, uh, isotretinoin, a generic name. Uh, Accutane is the old brand name, which, which no longer exists. But almost everyone's heard of that. And I have a lot of patients that are nervous or f- fearful of it. I, I'm not. It does have pon- uh, potentially significant side effects, but um, I monitor them for those side effects. I talk to them about it. But sometimes that's the only thing that will get them better. So instead of having a, a, a you know, disfiguring, scarring, um, uncomfortable condition, I can make them better. Um, so, I, you know, I will tell patients it may take a few tries, um, but we should be able to get you better and improve your acne if, if you will stick with the program. And it's great um, that, that we're able to do that. Yeah, and it sounds to me like you uh, want to uh, prescribe something which is, Effective, but you don't believe in in overkill. So there may be a couple of stages to determining what actually uh, is best. But that you want to initially come up with something that you think specifically is uh, going to be effective. Agreed. I, I I tell patients I take an aggressive approach because they're coming to me to get better. So I don't I don't want to start lightly and work my way up, but I don't want to overdo it. Um, because that, that's not helping them either. So I usually pick what I think is, is sort of on the aggressive end but going to be helpful, and we can adjust it up or down depending on, on how they tolerate the medications and, and obviously how they respond to the treatment plan. And, 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 and it sounds to me like you take a very classic scientific approach to sort of an evidence-based uh, uh, analysis of conditions, and that would uh, carry over into this next uh, uh, area, skin cancer, uh, you, you, you've got to be the first uh, um, person to help someone diagnose a condition which is uh, cancerous, and you do that uh, typically under the microscope, I would imagine. Uh, tell us about, uh, and, you know, we could spend a whole program on this, but just very briefly, you know, what what uh, what is the process of uh, making that diagnosis uh, and determining that a person may have a skin cancer and, and what are some of the, the next stages uh, who are you recommending for patients to see once you detect this? So the first step is, is getting the patient in the office. Sometimes that's the hardest step. Uh, but then examining them. Sometimes they know they have something they have a question about. And we always joke that half the time a patient comes in for one spot, that's not a problem, but I see something else that, that I you know, I recognize it as potentially problematic, and when it, you know, when I see that, or when they have a problem, they've recognized. Um, we discuss doing a biopsy, which is, which, you know, it, it's a quick, basic procedure in the office. It sounds um, much worse than it is, but quickly we we numb them up and we take a blade and just remove a portion of or, or the entire lesion, depending. And then we send it, like you mentioned, to our lab where I see it under the microscope. Um, and if if it is a skin cancer, we get the the information back to the patient. Um, there are different ways to treat them. The basic, um, which we discussed, was, was is, is skin surgery, basic um, in-office skin surgery. It's outpatient. It's usually very simple. It does involve you know, bringing the patient in. Um, we have to get them numbed up, and we, we use um, a, a blade to, to remove the involved skin. Um, and using just 
data, like you mentioned, evidence-based. We use data that's been gathered over many studies over many years that tells us how much skin to remove um, around the lesion. Um, and then once we we're able to remove it, we you know, we put the, the skin back together using stitches. Um, and the skin is a wonderful healing if we take care of it. So we instruct them on care. And, uh, and then we send that tissue off as well to make sure we've removed all the skin cancer. And then I always warn patients, once you've had one, you're more likely to have another. So we're going to watch you more closely. And if you see a new spot, if you see a spot that's changing, we mentioned if you have a sore that's not healing, anything like that, I want to know about it. Let, you know, let me see it and we can take a look. And even if there isn't anything that they see, is there a, a, an interval time? Is it once a year, once every couple of years? They should probably come in and have you take a look. Depending on the skin cancer, if it's non-melanoma skin cancer, um, we see them every six months. If it's a melanoma, I'll usually see them every three or four, four months for the first two years. Um, and then after a certain, after five years, sometimes we'll slow it back down to, to a year. It just depends on the patient and, and what we're seeing. That, that's where the art blends in with the science. Now, speaking of the art, uh, along with the science, um, it, it, it appears to me that you're someone who believes in communicating with the patient and, and trying to help them understand their condition, uh, not only just to be more knowledgeable, but it possibly can help them to understand why they should be better about their own treatment. Uh, uh, is that something you, you learned in medical school or through the years? Is that just always been uh, your um, your style of, of professionalism? Uh, we'll say um, because it seems to me you, you really want to help people understand what's going on. So I guess the answer in short is, is yes. I, I feel like I've learned it all the way through. Um, some of it I, I do like to communicate. I like to talk to people. Um, honestly, I'm fascinated by, you know, in science and, and skin disease in general. So it's fun for me to explain things to patients. Um, I think I know as I've been a patient too, and, and it's if you don't understand what's going on or why it's happening or why you're you know, taking a particular treatment course, it's much harder to, to follow that course. I know medicine used to be very paternalistic. A patient came in, you told them what they had and what they were going to do. Um, you know, you talk about training. My training is a little bit different. It's changed, I, I think, for the better, but it's a discussion with a patient. You always tell them, this is what we think is going on. This is why. These are the tests we need to run. This is what they'll show us. This is, you know, if, if, what the results will direct us to do. Um, and then you give them, we always talk about treatment options. You know, we talk about treating skin surgery, uh, skin cancer with surgery. You always give the patient, here's, here's the benefits of this procedure. Here's the potential risks of it. Here's your alternatives. Um, you don't have to do, you know, go undergo this treatment. But I've also just found in my experience, if I don't explain things to patients really well up front, I end up, you know, having to re-explain them later on. Um, and it's harder to earn your patient's trust later, you know, if you haven't earned it early on. So you really want them to trust not only that you know what you're doing, but that you can explain to them what's going on and help them get better. And I know that uh, one thing that's been incorporated into a lot of medical school programs is is teaching better bedside manner and that they point out, you know, better bedside manner and better communications means fewer lawsuits. Uh, with you, I sense that it's something that comes from, uh, if you will, your heart. You're just a personable person, and you just really want to keep people in the loop about their own condition because it makes them feel better. And uh, I sense that you really want, uh, you've used that term about treating them so they can feel better uh, as well as cure the illness, but also 
feel better. And when it comes to your skin, uh, particularly with conditions like itchiness, uh, that's what people want. They want to actually feel better. And they you can't always get that in a lot of areas in medicine. The, the, there isn't that always that capability. Uh, you're not going to feel better. How did you uh, determine uh, that you wanted to go to medical school, and how did you determine you wanted to become a dermatologist? Uh, so, you know, I was in, I went to college to be a history major. I thought I was going to be a history teacher. Um, and somewhere in there, I, I thought I wanted to challenge myself a little bit more with something different. I really I loved biology. I liked science a lot. I wasn't sure about chemistry and some of the other involved subjects, but I thought uh, I, I, one summer I took a chemistry class to see if I could maybe make it, and I, I did well in the class. I really enjoyed it. It was an early 8 a.m. summer school class. It kept The professor kept me awake, so I said, oh, maybe I can do this. Um, so I, I kind of just kept going and um, loved the challenge of the science. I, I love the mix of my classes of, of both you know, the, the social sciences with history and the, and the tr- you know, hard sciences. Um, and and you, went to, you got into medical school, which uh, I, I was thrilled about because I was applying at a difficult time to get in. Um, and, and just loved my time in medical school. It's, you know, four great years. Um, so, you know, that, that was, it was sort of a, just wanting to challenge myself with something I was interested in but wasn't entirely sure I could, I could handle it. And then the dermatology aspect, when did that emerge? Right. So I, I took a uh, military scholarship, was in the Navy, um, and, and they, it, was, it was great. They, they pay for medical school, but the, sort of the deal is you owe them once you get out of school, um, which I was excited about uh, and, and loved. But um, I went to medical school thinking I, I was going to be a pediatrician. Uh, but the way the Navy works it is you do your first year of training um, called your internship outside you know, once you finish medical school, and then you go and take care of the, the troops, so to speak. Um, so I did a, what's called a transitional year so I could do multiple different types of medicine, orthopedics, internal medicine, um, OB-GYN, because I wanted to, to be well prepared to treat whatever might come my way. Um, and it sort of helped me figure out what I wanted to do. And I, I did a dermatology rotation. And at the end, you know, it's a, it's a long, hard year. And, and the rules have changed, but I worked 100, 120 hours a week and spent three or four nights a week in the hospital, which when I was a young man was fun. Now sounds, it sounds um, less fun. But, you know, when I look back at the end of the year, I said, you know, I had the most fun on my dermatology month. I want to be a dermatologist. So when I finished my, my time in the Navy, uh, I applied to, to residency programs, and luckily I, I matched. Well, it sounds like you were really very lucky to have uh, become interested uh, in that specialty of dermatology, but also back when you studied chemistry, not everyone has the uh, the benefit of having their interests and their aptitudes uh, combined, and you did, and uh I sense that we're all better for it because I have the distinct impression that you're uh, uh, a professional of the highest order and uh, a really good physician, and I thank you for coming on to the program and sharing insights about dermatology. My pleasure. I was happy to be here. We've been listening to Dr. Adar Berghoff, a dermatologist here in North Metro Atlanta. You've been listening to the Business Hour on America's Web Radio. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the Internet and radio next week.